So uh, we are actually in the fifth part of uh, one of the most important series that we've actually ever done as a church. Uh, We've called it The Forgotten Way, Should I Stay Christian? And we've been talking about the fact that you can call yourself a Christian and pretty much believe and do just anything, pretty much anything that you want to because the Bible doesn't even tell us what, what it is. Uh, Christian was a term the first century people used that were outside the Jesus movement to describe those who were Jesus followers, but it is not the term that Jesus called them. Jesus called them disciples. And the reason, the reason that we're talking about this is because there is a movement that is building momentum away from Christianity. And if you've missed any of this series, I just can't over-exaggerate how important it is for you to get online to watch or to listen to all these messages, because with each passing year, more and more are walking away from or rejecting Christianity altogether, especially in America. And to some degree, this may sound off, but I celebrate this. Because what it means is we, and when I say we, I literally mean we, we, those of us in this room, those that are joining us online or listening online, we have the opportunity to do something and offer something better. The original version begun by Jesus, which we have termed a forgotten way, because in our country for a long time, far too many have settled for Christian, which has jaded millions of people to the church and ultimately to Jesus, and it is time for things to change, because as it is, you find Christians on both sides of every single issue, whether it's political, financial, moral, family, war, Because you can describe and define Christian any way you want. It's why we have Christians in the ever-Trump camp. It's why we have Christians in the never-Trump camp. It's why we have Christians that can chant, build that wall. It's why we have Christians who are appalled by that. It's why we have Christians who protest for LGBT rights. We have Christians that protest against LGBT rights. We have Christians who are vehemently anti-abortion. We have Christians who are vehemently pro-choice, and you have Christians that are passionate for Black Lives Matter, and you have Christians passionately in opposition to Black Lives Matter, pro-death penalty, anti-death penalty, and it goes on and on and on, and they yell and they chant and they insult one another and they slander one another on social media. And then you add to that the Christian closet filled with centuries of skeletons ranging from sexual abuse and cover-ups, corruption, crusades, ethnic cleansings, the drowning of those convicted as witches, hangings and burning at the stake for those that were deemed heretics uh, by, uh, by Christians. Interestingly, I personally uh, am blessed to have a document tracing part of my family history back to the early 1500s, actually into the late 1400s, which includes as- ancestors of mine who were Anabaptists. Now, Anabaptists were a group of reformists who broke from the Catholic Church, emphasized adherence to the teachings and the beliefs of early Christianity as a whole, rather than to the Vatican, the Pope, and the Catholic Church, which I confess, it inspires me to know that I'm such an unworthy part of such a noble spiritual heritage, but it explains a lot too. Uh, Anabaptists, they were distinguished by their determination to keep Jesus as the focus of faith and life, and keeping of practices tight to the Sermon 
on the mountain, uh, mount, as well as uh, feet washing, the laying on of hands, turning the other cheek, uh, making no oaths, going the second mile, offering a cup of water to those who are thirsty, reconciliation, repeated forgiveness, humility, nonviolence, sharing of possessions, and their big offense was that uh, they held that baptism should only be as a result of a person choosing to be baptized versus an unwilling participant such as baptizing infants. So based on all that, you can tell they are a very horrific group, right? So they were deemed heretics. And in the middle of the 1500s, I have documents recording how some of my Anabaptist ancestors were buried up to their neck at low tide and then given until the tide came in to recant their beliefs. None of them did. All of them died. Anken Hendricks was an Anabaptist in Amsterdam in 1871, in 1571, sorry. She was deemed a heretic, but she wasn't just burned by Christians. It says, quote, they did not let her speak, but instead filled her mouth with gunpowder that was stuffed into a rag and then tied around her face. They tied her to a ladder and carried her thus from the city hall to the fire in which they cast her alive. All of this done in the name of Christianity. But when you open the New Testament, And ask the question, what does it look like to be a follower of Jesus? You find none of that. None of this. You don't find Christianity. Rather, what you find, what we discovered, is the forgotten way. What we've discovered, the Jesus. We've discovered the Jesus of whom the evidence is overwhelmingly convincing that he did in fact predict and pull off his own death and resurrection. The one who launched this movement said, if you don't get anything else right, This one thing should characterize and define you more than anything else, that by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, there's our term, if you love one another. It's not your gold jewelry, your cross uh, uh, that you wear on your necklace, it's not your religious tattoo, it's not what you do on a Sunday morning, it's not how often you read your Bible or how much you memorize or how often you pray, it's not what kind of family you were born into, the fact that you're baptized, it's not what denomination or what political party you are affiliated with. He said they're going to know by how you love one another. And here's how I want you to love one another. I want you to love the way I love. I want you to love the way I have loved you. And that is a problem for us. Because when you open up Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which we refer to as the Gospels, you look at the way Jesus loved. It was unconditional. It was sacrificial. And to be honest, it's a bit overwhelming. It it feels a bit unattainable. And what makes it even harder for us is that it can seem inconsistent at times. Because when you open the New Testament and ask the question, how did Jesus love, here's what you discover. It was messy, it was inconsistent, and at times, in certain situations, you'd have to say it was just unfair. Like, you heal one, but hundreds are also surrounding, they need healing too, but you heal the one? And at the end of the day, it's confusing and it creates tension. And our temptation is to resolve that tension. And if you don't hear anything else I say today, please hear this. If you or I try to resolve the tension that's created around Jesus' love, you lose. 
and so does everyone else around you. In fact, here's, this is how important this talk is today to me. I'm convinced that this is the number one divider of Christians and churches, this very issue that we're going to talk about today. And I want you to know that from the beginning, we have worked hard to hang on to this tension, even though at times it has cost us. For example, in 2019, I did a message on our posture towards the LGBT community, and though I was clear about our posture and our position, I didn't resolve some of the tension. In fact, for some, it felt very unresolved and add to the fact that we have LGBT individuals who are a part of this community that are actively exploring and trying to seek God and learn what it looks like to follow Jesus with their whole life, which, by the way, uh, this brings me great joy. And let's just go ahead and level the playing field right now because the playing field is this, that every single one of us is on a journey to discover what it looks like to live a life, all of our life, including the sexual aspect of our life, in a way that is lined up with God's deepest desires for us. But as a result, we've had people leave our community because they cannot accept the unresolved tension that they feel. We've had people leave because we didn't have a hard and clear policy prohibiting alcohol, especially in our small groups. They were just unwilling to live with the tension, and so they left. And in the beginning of this church, I did a five-part series that was targeted for the atheist and the agnostic. And in the first messages, two messages of this five-part series, I didn't reference a single Bible verse, because my audience was the agnostic and the atheist, but we had some that were even part of our original launch team, that for them, like, to not have a Bible verse and the message just felt too dissonant, and it presented unresolved tension, and they left. And we invite, we invite skeptics and seekers and explorers to play in our band, to serve on our host team, to serve on tech team, and to serve with us in the city, and as a result, at times, you just need to know we're going to seem messy. And at times, we're going to seem inconsistent and unfair and and confusing. But we're not going to change that. We can't because of who we follow. Because whenever you open the Scriptures and take seriously the life and the teachings and the actions of Jesus, there's this tension. Because at times, He seems so forgiving. And then at other times, it's like He holds everybody accountable. And at times he's harsh, but then at times he's kind. At times he directly points out sin, and then there's other times it's like he just ignores it altogether. And it's what drove people crazy about Jesus. But he was comfortable with it. He was able to minister through it. And even even though to us it's messy. So if we're doing it right, if we're doing it like Jesus, it's going, it means that at times we're going to seem inconsistent. We may be confusing. And there's going to be times that people are going to look at me or look at us and go, what are they really about? What do they really believe? And to help us get to the heart of this, we're going to learn from John, who was one of Jesus' closest friends and followers. And unlike the rest of the apostles who were martyred, John grew to be an old man. So about 40, 45 years after the resurrection of Jesus, he's now in his 60s or 70s, which in that context was really, really old. And when I was 18, I felt it was really, really old too. Not so much now. Uh, it became evident that John, uh, to John that Jesus wasn't returning just yet. I mean, Jesus said, I'm coming back. And they're like, okay, so like, Thursday, like Friday, when you, you know, but now years have gone by, and John's got all these memories and these stories and all this stuff, and so he sits down years later, and he begins to write this account of Jesus, and he he begins with this great, grand picture that God sent his word 
Jesus into the world and the Word became flesh and He was human and He walked around among us and, and He ate with us. So he describes it as if, as if God created this beautiful painting full of people and then somehow He painted Himself into the painting so that he could interact with the people in his painting and reveal himself as the artist. But the people did not recognize him and they rejected him as the artist. So they threw him out. And here are the words that he left us with. John says the word, talking about Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And there's this great imagery that Jesus camped out with. He moved in. He lived with us. And when he says us, he's talking literally about us, he and his friends, the guys who ate and lived and talked with Jesus. He says, we have seen something you haven't seen. We have all seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. And then in this opening section of John's incredible piece, he gives us our terminology the words that best capture this tension that if you're going to be a Jesus follower, you're going to bump into more than once because it's messy and inconsistent and it's hard. He said, Jesus came from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. Full to the brim, grace. Full to the brim, truth. And there's the tension attention. Grace and truth. Now, you know what grace is, and you know what truth is. So, grace is you're forgiven. Truth is you're accountable. Grace is you're fine. Truth is you're broken. Grace is it's going to be okay. Truth is you're going to have to work on it. Grace is I love you no matter what you do. Truth is you need to change. And there's the tension. And we all individually tend to lean more in one direction or the other. Most of you, uh, not all of you, but most of you were raised by two parents. And one of them was probably more grace and one was more truth. Okay. And which one did you like better? You liked Mr. or Mrs. Grace. Like, right? Okay. So like the one that just most felt like you were fine the way that you are. And they just want you to be happy and comfortable and at peace all the time. And, and, but if you, had a, you grew up in a great home, you had a good dose of both, because we all know what it can also be, all you've got is the truth. And John says that I spent years watching Jesus, and I watched how all these intricacies that he navigated, some very difficult circumstances, and here's what I found. I found that he was absolutely and completely full of grace. And completely full of truth. That he, to the brim, was full of both. It wasn't a balance of. He was full of it. Full of both. And John says, I listened to him. And I watched him. And I'm just telling you. Out of his fullness, we have received grace in the place of grace already given. So literally translated, this is we have received grace upon grace upon grace. 
So in the Greek, it's the idea of perpetual grace. It's a grace that cannot be measured, that he poured it out with a bottomless bucket of grace, and it overflowed. And then to bring us to a point of contrast, he says, for the law, which is the Ten Commandments, and then the 603 other commandments in the Jewish Scriptures, for the law was given through Moses. The law was what told us what God expects and the specific consequences of what's to happen to you, or if you don't meet up to those expectations, the law said, thou shalt not, thou shalt really not, and if thou do, here's the punishment, or thou must go to the temple and do this, or offer this sacrifice to be able to make atonement for your sin. The law was given to us through Moses, and then John makes this huge distinction. But grace and truth came. Literally, it's, it was begotten. It was born. It was brand new. It had not existed before. Grace and truth showed up as the full package through Jesus Christ, full to the brim, not the balance of. And that's where you and I want to live. We want to live trying to, you know, 50-50, 70-30, 90-10. We want to live somehow in this balance. And no, it was the full measure of each. And this is what makes Jesus so messy and confusing and seemingly inconsistent at times and unpredictable. Everybody then and everybody now wants to lean one way or the other. But John said he brought all of it with every individual, with every interaction, in every situation. And just when we thought he was going to go one way or the other, he didn't. And he would surprise us, and it would throw us off, and it would confuse us. And as you begin to read the Gospels through that lens, you begin to see it over and over and over again. One day he shows up at the well, and a Samaritan woman comes out. And now he's all alone with this Samaritan woman, and he talks to her because she, what, he, this is not something he should do. She is a social and religious outcast. There's grace, which throws her off. Like, why are, you, why are you talking to me? You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. He says, I, I, I'm thirsty. Would you drop your jar and would you get me some water? And she's amazed that he's talking to her. And then just when things are going well at the well, he says, hey, why don't you go back to town and get your husband and bring him out to me? And she says, I, I have no husband. And then he reaches into the most painful, shameful part of her her life. And he says, I know, I know. You've had five. And the man that you're living with now is, is not your husband. You're not even married to him. And even Samaritans know that you're you don't do that. You're, you're a five-time divorcee. You've, you've clearly made a series of bad decisions when it comes to men. Truth. It's like, Jesus, did, did you not go to seminary? Okay, like, like where is the sensitivity, the grace, you know? But you know, what we miss, even if you've read the Bible for decades, a lot of you, we can miss this, is that Jesus reveals something to this woman that we don't find him revealing to anyone else in the Gospels. Out alone by this well, he looks at this social and religious outcast. He looks her in the eyes and says, guess who I am? I haven't told anybody. I've chosen you, a five-time divorcee, a divorced Samaritan woman who's shacking up with a guy you're not even married to. I've chosen in this place to share this with you that I am the one that you've been waiting on your whole life. I'm the Messiah. 
and I am able and happy to give you the water that will quench the thirst of your soul in a way that no man can or ever will. And she leaves her jar and she runs into town and she tells the people with whom she has no credibility, I've met the long-awaited Messiah of God. And yet, as a result, the whole town goes out to meet Jesus. He stays with them a few days and many, many come to know and believe in Jesus and their lives are changed forever. And then there's Matthew, the tax collector. Many of us have gotten something in the mail with a return address that says eternal, internal revenue service. None of us go, oh goody, like I am so happy. I mean, we hate tax collectors now. You really hated them then because they were all Jewish traders. They were collecting for Rome from their own people. In the first century, they had two categories, tax collectors and then all the sinners. Tax collectors, whole other category. And Jesus says to Matthew, while he's sitting there in the booth, in broad daylight, collecting taxes where everybody can see and hear, hey, I want you to come be a part of my group. I want you to come follow me. He doesn't even tell him to quit being a tax collector. He's just like, just come, just come follow me. And Jesus' disciples were thinking what far too many 21st century Christians think about when it comes to their gatherings and their churches. Hold on. If we have a tax gatherer in our group, other people are going to think we approve of tax gatherers. Okay, if we have a tax gatherer, in our, I mean, Jesus, aren't you afraid that people are going to think that we approve of tax gathering or, or tax gatherers by having one in our group? To which Jesus would have said, because he had a sense of humor, hey, guess what? It's going to get worse. We're going to his house, and he's going to invite all of his sinner and tax-gathering friends, and we're going to have a big sinner and tax-gatherer dinner party. I mean, you, you think your, rep your reputation is in jeopardy right now. You just wait till about 6 p.m. when this tax-gathering sinner party really begins to crank up. You're going to have no reputation in this community because everybody's going to be seeing you socializing and eating with tax collectors and sinners. And because this is Jesus, this is the forgotten way, and because at New Life... We're determined to, our, to do our best to be disciples and not Christians. We're determined to do our best to live in the messiness of grace and truth. Why? Because Jesus did. But it's challenging and it's messy. I mean, Jesus, doesn't it concern you that it looks like you're approving of what they do by inviting them into your group, approving of their sin, to which Jesus would have said, what, why do you think I've come? Who do you think I've come for? I mean, the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. I've not come here to guard my reputation in the eyes of other people. Then, if you grew up in church, you know that Jesus was crucified between two. We were told it was thieves. They weren't thieves. They didn't crucify thieves. They crucified the worst of the worst. These were men that couldn't even be trusted to row in a Roman galley. These were men who could never be trusted to just be a slave and work in the mines. He's crucified between two worst of the worst. One of them says, we're getting what we deserve. And you would expect Jesus to go, no, you know, you have a good heart. You had an absentee father. I mean, you've got mommy issues, whatever. Don't be so hard on yourself. No, it's basically, you're right. You deserve this. But you have turned to me. You, you recognized me for who I am and believed. And when, that means when you breathe your last breath and I breathe mine, you and I are going to the same place. Today, you will be with me in paradise. 
Okay, wait a minute, Jesus. A few chapters ago, a rich guy comes to you and says, I want to have eternal life. And you said to him, okay, in, for, in order for you to have eternal life, you need to go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. This guy gives up nothing with one minute left on the clock? That's totally unfair. That's completely confusing. Others could have said, we've given up everything to follow you. And at the last minute, he's like, now I'm going to live my life for you. Okay, I'm going to live my life for you is like a few minutes. And he can't even go anywhere and do anything good. It seems to be a completely meaningless last-minute ploy or plea for mercy. And yet Jesus says today, you and me, best of the best, worst of the worst, will be together in paradise. And there's a tension there, Right? And it can't be resolved. And then maybe the most famous story finds its way into the Gospel of John. It's about the woman who's caught in the act of adultery, always interested, where's the dude? But, you know, um, but they bring this woman to Jesus, and it's Jesus, according to the law of Moses, she should be put to death, stoned to death. And Jesus is like, okay, stone her. And let's begin with the person that has no sin, okay? Just try not to hit me, all right? Jesus is like, you're, you're correct. She has broken God's law, so go ahead and stone her. Truth. And the person with no sin, you start. Truth. The person who's never committed adultery in your heart, who's never looked at another woman lustfully, the person without sin, you get this party started. And suddenly, the law of Moses and retribution begins to break down, and they all go away. And after they've all left, Jesus looks at this woman, and he doesn't say, it's okay, I know you had daddy issues, and it was, things were arranged, or whatever. And, uh, you know, you've got self-image issues, you made a mistake. You just, maybe you wanted to flirt, and you just never, things would go so far. He doesn't explain away any of her choices. Rather, he says, I don't condemn you. Grace. Now, leave your life of sin. Truth. Okay, Jesus, which is it? I don't condemn you, or you're a sinner. Yes. Because I, Jesus, I'm the embodiment of grace and truth. And again, as a church, we work to get this right. I try hard as a Jesus follower to get this right. But I don't. And we won't always get this right. We will never because we're not Jesus. We're just doing our best to follow him and obey him and reflect him. But, you know, being a grace church would be much easier. Okay, just... Because it's like, you're fine. You are fine. You're, you know you're fine. You're so fine. You're fine the way you are. You don't need to change a thing. You just be you. You just follow your own truth. You just decide what's right for you. So much easy, easier. Being a truth church would be easy. Because then we've got clear lines and limits and do's and don'ts. And we can point our fingers at those who don't obey the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, except when it's me right? Because when it's us, suddenly we want the grace parts, right? So it's messy. But Jesus, he made it clear, if you're going to be his follower, his disciple, not a Christian, not just a Christian, then we must love as he loves. And how did he love? He called sin, sin, and then he paid for it. 
And having paid for it, he declared, I don't condemn you. And then he says to all of us, now that I've called sin, sin, now that I've paid for it all and said that I don't condemn you because I don't, I want you to leave your life of sin because I love you. And if you don't, I will still love you. And if the wounds and the shrapnel of your own sin have led you to a place where you're not sure that you will ever be able to walk away from the complexity of your sin, I love you. And if someone has sinned against you, they've hurt you, they have wounded you to such an extent that it sent you into a spiral, maybe into self-destructive behavior, you're not sure you'll ever recover from it. I love you. The truth is you are a sinner. The grace is I don't condemn you and no one will ever love you as much as I love you. For some of you, that's why you're here this morning or listening. Because you struggle. You carry the weight of constant shame, guilt, and condemnation. You're so focused on all the ways that you fall short of God's standards or you aren't good enough that grace seems too good to be true. And deep down at best you think God may love me but he does not like me. And at worst, God's grace cannot truly be big enough to resolve all the ways that I have fallen, do fall, and will fall short. But if someone is willing to die for you, you never have to wonder how they feel about you. And no one will ever be able to love you as much as Jesus. And when you put your trust in Jesus, according to him, According to those who witness the resurrected Jesus, something wonderful and mysterious happens. You are in that moment reconciled to God. You enter into a permanent state of not condemned. You need to know that you don't win God's love. He loved you from the beginning. And the Apostle Paul, he would later write that the riches of his kindness and his forbearance and his patience, which was shown to us when we didn't deserve it, when we weren't even interested in it. It's all intended to lead us to a place where we change the direction of our life. We repent. We leave our life of self-sabotage. And there's this tension between grace and truth. And if you ever try to resolve it, you will get something that isn't Jesus. If you ever try to resolve it, you get Christianity. A character of what Jesus envisioned for his body, his ecclesia, his movement, his church. And you and I don't have to look hard to see the havoc, the confusion, the destruction, the impotence that results when the church opts for one or the other extreme. Do you know why we can't ever let go of truth? Because every sin has a built-in consequence that always has pain and regret. And we've all experienced this, no matter what you believe about Jesus, because every single one of us carries regret. Which means that every single one of us have said or done things that not only hurt us, but they hurt other people that we say that we love. And God doesn't want you to hurt you or hurt the people that you love. So he's constantly saying, here's what's true. Here's how you need to live. Here's how you've got to treat people. Here's what you need to do with your morality and with, with truth, because I love you. Please trust me. 
Here's why you have to be honest. Here's why you can't steal or cheat or need to confess. Why you need to be accountable. Because every sin has a built-in gotcha. And I don't want sin to get you or the people that you love. And the reason we can't let go of grace is because to some extent, sin has already got us. And the only way, the only way back to any of, uh, for any of us to God is grace. Grace is the only way to reconnect with your Father And so you and I, you need truth and you need grace. And only you can deal with that. Because here's the thing. For some of you, maybe you've labeled yourself a Christian, but let me be clear about something. If you know what Jesus says, if you know in your heart what God wants from you and for you, and it's like, I know what God wants, but I'm I'm not going to do what he wants. I'm going to do what I want to do. You need to know that until you're ready to embrace his truth, you're not in a position to receive his grace. And only you can make that decision. And, and as a church, if Jesus is, was the embodiment of grace and truth, and if we are his hands and his feet, then we are to represent the best expression of Jesus that anyone will ever know. As a friend of mine said years ago, that we are the only Bible that some people will ever read. So we have to be comfortable with the messiness and the unfairness and the inconsistency of all the stuff that goes along with managing the tension between grace and truth. And because we, the church, is that it's the church is at its best when it embraces grace and truth and refuses to let go of each other or let go of, of either, that's why we stay that course. And you should know something about me. In my best effort, and I know I fail, and I'm sure he and I are going to have a lot of conversation, but in my effort, my best effort to reflect Jesus as a scene in the gospel accounts, I'm always going to lead by grace first. And then when the time is right, either right away or sometime later, when I sense that God has given this person ears to hear, I will follow it with truth, but I don't always get it right. And like many of you, I like conflict avoidance just as much as you do. But sometimes we've got to lean into it. That's why we often say at New Life in this community, you can belong before you believe. It's why we invite people who aren't yet Jesus followers to serve in various roles in this community. Because again, if Jesus was the embodiment of grace and truth, and if the church is his body, and we are his body, we are his hands and his feet, then we are the best expression of Jesus than some people that anyone will ever know. So as I wrap up, if you're willing to be more than just Christian and be a disciple, to practice the forgotten way, here's what I'm asking of you. And the first thing is for many, you to just embrace. God loves you. He genuinely loves you. He knows everything about you, and he loves you. And if you're willing to place the full trust and weight of your life into what Jesus did on the cross for you, you need to realize I am irrevocably labeled, not condemned. I am loved. I am free every day. And the second thing is to embrace this, that this good news is not just for me. If I'm a Jesus follower, if I'm going to be a disciple, as Jesus defines it, a disciple of Jesus is defined as someone who inspires other people to become disciples. So to put it practically, as we've talked about here before, I'm asking you to invest in the lives of the unchurched and the de-churched people in your lives. 
those who are trying to figure it all out, those who have avoided God and church because of all the reasons that we've talked about in this series. And I'm asking you to invite people, especially unchurched people, to come. Come sit with me. Come and see. Come sit with me in my church. I'll buy you lunch. If you can't afford it, as I've said, we'll cover the tab. Not steak. Hey, would you be willing to uh, go through the study over lunch with me? You know, just once a week. Can we get together for lunch? Go through this book together. Or hey, our church is doing this or that. Why don't you join me? Knowing that at times we're going to need to lead into uncomfortable truth, which is going to be uncomfortable for you, uncomfortable for new people, but hopefully we'll do it in such a way that people feel challenged but not condemned. I'd like to invite the band up. To, to love others as Jesus loved is messy. It's difficult, but we dare not let go of either grace or truth because there was a time in our lives and there will be a time in each of our lives where we are going to need a massive dose of truth. We're going to need people in our lives. They're going the same direction. They're going to lean in and they're going to give us the truth that's going to be hard to swallow. And then we're going to need massive doses of grace. And we as a church, we're going to do our best to be a faithful dispenser of both. Yeah, you guys are worried about that, aren't you? There you go. I'm going to sit right on the floor. Look at that. Dad of four children. The band is going to reprise the song that we sang this morning, um, Good Grace. And part of the reason I wanted to do that is in my experience in the church world, the church has leaned far more in the direction of truth, <laughs> and generally truth that, that maybe they themselves don't struggle or they're lying about, and they want to point at the rest of the world. And I think truth is kind of easy to believe, because a lot of times we look in the mirror and sometimes we're our own worst critic. I know I am for me. I think the grace piece is the hardest piece, piece especially in those moments where we're feeling so insecure, or so broken, or so fallen, or falling so short. And so I ask that they would just reprise the song because um, for some of us, we just need to be reassured that this is how Jesus loves and this is something that we have in our life. Let me pray. Father, I, uh, I ask God for all of us in our own individual life that you would help us to find that fullness of grace and truth in our own life as we just live each day and we're trying to navigate all the complexities of relationships and work and school and, and to try and do it in such a way where we're not trying to earn your love but because you loved us that it brings us joy to be able to live a life in knowing that your way is trustworthy because you always have our best interest in mind and I pray Father that you would guide us as we interact with people that are working through what they believe and those who have become jaded and unfortunately for good reason but that somehow, Father, that through us, that, that say we follow you, that have put our faith in you, that, Father, that you truly would cause us to be a light, the salt that we've talked about in this series, and that there would be something about us in the way we love and treat others, that it would inspire them, it would draw them ultimately to you. So, Father, I pray all of these things in, in the name of Jesus. Amen.